This podcast is sponsored by the Global Connected Aircraft Summit, the only event dedicated to complete connected aircraft solutions. You'll gain a deeper understanding of global connectivity and have the opportunity to network with more than 300 airline and supplier attendees. For more information, visit GCASummit.com. That's GCASummit.com. And use promo code AIRWEEK, that's A-I-R-W-E-E-K, to save $200 on registration. It's enough to give any airline CEO the shivers. Turkey saw a 30% decline in inbound tourists in 2016. Most of that decline is a result of terrorist attacks within the country and in neighboring countries. And not surprisingly, the fallout for Turkey's two main airlines has been, financially speaking, nothing short of a nightmare. Some of the grisly statistics... Turkish Airlines finished 2016 with a negative 4% operating profit margin. And one thing I've learned observing this industry is that you want that number to be a positive one. And things were much worse for Pegasus Airlines, who posted a negative 24% operating margin in the fourth quarter. Yikes. That voice you're hearing is Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner of Airline Weekly. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly. And if it's not obvious already, we're going to start the show in Turkey, we're also going to talk about oil prices, narrow-body aircraft, and blizzard conditions. Fortunately, it's warm and toasty in the Airline Weekly Lounge, and there's no snow, but we do have plenty of ice. Thanks for joining us. We're looking at Turkish Airlines and Pegasus Airlines, two carriers struggling mostly because they are simply in Turkey. Starting with Turkish, their fourth quarter operating profit margin was a negative 4%. They lost more than $300 million for the year. But there was one huge piece of good news. We wrote in Airline Weekly that the Turkish losses for the off-peak period weren't terribly out of line for the fourth quarter. That sounds really hopeful, is it? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the negative... Four percent compares with negative two percent a year earlier. Uh, so that's not much of a decline, decline at all, considering how bad things were. And and more importantly, you know, if you're kind of looking for trends here, it's a much smaller decline than what they experienced in the third quarter. Now, the third quarter, what was 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 better than the fourth quarter. It always is. It was profitable, in fact, an eight percent margin. But that eight percent in the third quarter uh, compared with twenty one percent in the same quarter a year earlier. So, uh, you know, roughly a 13 point degradation there. Uh, and as I said, now, you know, you're talking negative 4% compared to negative 2% for the fourth quarter. Uh, so that would indicate that perhaps they're, they're getting their hands around some of what's going on. Now, uh, you know, you, you'd want to see some more quarters confirming that, uh, you know, before getting too excited. Uh, I mean, look, you know, part of it is, you know, maybe there's just more air in the balloon to be, begin with in the third quarter because it's, you know, peak tourist season and so forth. So when things turn bad, they're going to show up more there. Uh, and, you know, it's all no, no uh, large consolation when, when the year uh, ends up being a bad one. But um, but for what it's worth, uh, you know, you, you certainly want to see the that differential, that negative differential contracting in the most recent quarter. Uh, and that indeed is what happened for Turkish. Moving over to Pegasus, they lost $50 million on the year and a whopping negative 24% operating margin for the fourth quarter. 
But that also sounds worse than it is, right? Well, their fourth quarters are always awful. Uh, the seasonal swing is even bigger than than it is for uh, for Turkish. So, uh, you know, back when things were, were, were going well for Pegasus, as, as they once were, um, you know, it still earned most of its profits in the third quarter. Uh, you know, really running up the score in the third quarter and then just kind of hoping not to give it all back in the other quarters. Uh, so, so in their case, a year earlier, they were at negative 13%. Uh, for the fourth quarter. Uh, so now you see there that decline from that to negative 24% uh, is worse than the decline that uh, the Turkish experienced. Uh, but still, when you add it all up, uh, you know, you look at the year, uh, the, the two airlines were, were rather similar. Uh, you know, the, the roughly negative three and a half percent for both of them. Turkish Airlines was, was percentage points worse actually uh, annually, but, uh, but, you know, both of them with those uh, with those modest losses, uh, which you know, as awful as things have been in Turkey, including, I mean, we're talking about a place where you know the airport itself uh, was was uh, the scene of of, of a, a grisly terrorist attack. Uh, so you know, somewhat of an accomplishment actually for those airlines financially that uh, that things weren't even worse than than they than they indeed were. Despite the recent struggles, both of these carriers continue to grow. Turkish grew ASKs by 11% last year, and Pegasus was up 8% in Q4 compared to the year before. Is that kind of growth in this kind of environment at all quixotic? Yeah, I think it is. Um, that Turkish has has really slammed the brakes on the growth. Uh, but by the fourth quarter, uh, they had they had stopped growing. Um, and and, and they're not growing this year. Pegasus uh, has slowed it down, but continues growing. Uh, I mean, look, all airlines like to grow when the demand is there because growth, we've talked about it before on here, Jason, uh, you know, when you're growing, you're pushing down unit costs, uh, you know, the cost of carrying each seat one mile goes down. That's good. Um, but the demand needs to be there to support that, uh, you know, in, in a healthy demand environment, especially if fuel is cheap, uh, you know, very often the it can net out positively when you grow uh you know when you grow your unit revenues are always going to fall i mean that's 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 the side effect but uh but if the demand is there your unit revenues might fall by less than your unit costs and that means more profits um when the demand is not there uh you can be in a situation where okay you're growing and that's pushing down your unit costs okay great uh but too bad that your unit revenues are falling by even more and that's that's exactly what's up what's happening there so um you know they're they're clearly uh turkish for one clearly very much aware of that they're they're doing the right things now uh still this very broad global network and they've continued growing in terms of putting dots on the map and we're talking about an airline that flies to you know more countries than any other in the world uh, you know new service to havana bogota panama city atlanta i mean caracas of all places um but uh, sort of more quietly they've reduced frequency in a lot of other markets uh and when you add it all up this is uh uh, no longer a growth airline. The question is whether they've done enough. You know whether they need to be shrinking by even more than they are. Uh, you know they're they're focusing on sixth freedom traffic, Jason. You know people connecting between international flights in Istanbul, so that's you know less vulnerable uh, than it is you know to to either local passengers or those connecting to a domestic destination because you know you, you talked about the the tourism downturn well you know there are a lot of people who still are willing to connect in Istanbul but you know aren't interested in visiting Turkey uh but uh you know having said that when you 
take all that local traffic sort of off the table in terms of tourism or a lot of it anyway off the table in terms of tourism and you still factor in that yeah there's probably some reluctance among some people to uh um to even transit istanbul um you know it, it's it's uh pretty hard to keep growing at the clip that they've been growing and expected the demand is going to be there it, it's not so looking ahead for both these carriers, I see two carriers that are still extremely well positioned, and I'm wondering if their biggest threat, despite despite all the tumults around them, is actually each other. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, they're 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 direct competitors in a lot of markets. Um, I, I mean, look, it, it, it's it's we're talking about a country of 75 million people. Um, now it's a developing country. I mean, so you don't have the same level of demand for that country of 75 million people than you do for. You know, Germany, you know, it was roughly similar population. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's an economy that up until the past, you know, year or so anyway ha- had been growing, uh, nicely. And, um, you know, so, so, so yeah, you'd, you'd expect, uh, two, two really big airlines and you have some others there too. But, uh, um, and, and, and that's indeed what you have there. Um, but, you know, they, they, they compete in different realms against different airlines. So, uh, so yeah, you know, and anywhere where, you know, Pegasus has flights in range, you know, Pegasus is very much a domestic, a direct competitor, at least for, you know, economy passengers against Turkish, you know, in, in a lot of other spaces, uh, Turkish would consider its uh, competitors, the, the, you know, Gulf carriers in, in some cases competing for the same traffic, uh, European legacy carriers competing for the same traffic in other cases, in, including its its partner, but, you know, really competitor also Lufthansa. So yeah, you know, and, and Pegasus likewise, um, you know, a lot of markets would, would say, uh, um, you know, the European low cost carriers are, are, uh, you know, just as important in terms of competition as as uh, as an airline like Turkish, but uh, but yeah, no, you're you're right, Jason. They compete directly uh, in in uh, in a lot of markets, um, and there are a lot of interesting dynamics there. You know, Istanbul's going to soon going to have a new airport. A lot is going to happen here. Um, over the next few years, uh, it's just now at least happening in the context of of demand that's no longer growing the, the way it had been growing. And I'd like to remind our listeners that The Lounge is made possible by our sponsor, the Global Connected Aircraft Summit. Learn more at GCASummit.com. Turkey's problems notwithstanding, airlines around the world have generally been enjoying a pretty good run lately. And the news might be getting better. Oil prices appear to be dropping. Seth, if oil prices start a downward trend, how much more confident are airlines going to get? Oh, they'll feel good about that. Uh, you know, more some than others. Um, you know, so if you're sort of, you know, ranking who's the happiest about that, uh, well, U.S. carriers tend to be because uh, very often, you know, cheaper oil um, also you know kind of correlates with the stronger dollar, and so for airlines uh, buying jet fuel in, in in weaker currencies, you know, in currencies that are weakening, even as oil prices are are dropping, um, they don't get the full benefit of that. Uh, you have, of course, airlines in in regions of, of the world where uh, cheap oil prices hurts the local economy, uh, hurt I should say the local economy. So obviously, talking about the Arabian Gulf carriers, where uh, th- I mean, these are airlines that that uh, were at least in the case of Emirates, which you know is, is publishes the most in terms of financial figures, you know we can say conclusively that uh, you know the fact that oil prices are are uh, uh, you know half of where they were a few years ago um, has not translated into higher profits. You know, on the contrary, they, they're they're uh, they're struggling because of a weak demand environment. I mean, I mean it's true in 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 Houston if you're you know united with a the hub there, or Calgary if you're WestJet headquartered and within with a the hub there. Um, 
but you know broadly speaking uh yeah cheaper jet fuel you know cheaper the thing that 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 you pay more for than anything else uh you know which which is the case for most airlines uh fuel for most of them generally their their number one cost item although it, it points here especially about a year ago that that had changed for a few of them anyway uh you know obviously very very helpful most airlines would will take that and and deal with the uh the, the less pleasant uh, uh, side effects. But, you know, the other thing cheap fuel does is it, it gives airlines, you ask me if they're more confident. I mean, that's that's what it does. It gives them some confidence. Um, and sometimes they start uh, taking more risks. They start growing more rapidly. And uh, then sometimes all of that additional supply can in turn push down yields, push down airfares to the point where um, perhaps it's not positive. And the worst combination of all is when that happens. So when fuel prices drop and airlines then start growing more rapidly uh, and and yields and unit revenues fall, uh, and then oil prices go back up, you know, and, and and that and that can certainly happen. There's always this lag time between oil price movements and sort of the second order effects. Um, so at the moment that oil prices are dropping, that, that's kind of when it's most helpful because everything else is the way it had been before the oil prices were dropping, right? Um, so you know, today uh, airlines are paying meaningfully less for jet fuel than they were a week ago. Um, but all the schedules that they're flying today are schedules that they planned a long time ago. Uh, you, know, you know, Passengers are flying on tickets that they bought a while ago. And so um, you know, so it's just sort of a bumper crop. Uh, as time goes on, uh, well, then you know, whatever additional capacity growth and all of that will uh, will come into the marketplace. It happens the other direction, too. It, it, it's particularly painful when air oil prices are going up. And airlines are flying around in a, in a revenue environment uh, that was created back when oil prices were cheap. I'm bouncing around here a bit, but uh, there was a media report that the ruling families in Dubai and Abu Dhabi have discussed a merger between Emirates and Etihad. The idea was called nonsense by Tim Clark, the CEO of Emirates. But let's set aside the veracity of the report for a moment. Seth, is a merger a good idea to begin with? And what does Dubai's new airport have to do with this story? Yeah, well, taking that last part first, that actually wasn't mentioned in the report by uh, Handelsblatt out, out, out of Germany. But I, I think that's 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 an important element. You know, if the, if you're familiar with the with the geography of, of the United Arab Emirates, the current airport, well, the current main airport, the second one is open now, but you know, not 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 serving very many passengers yet, but the current main airport, the longstanding main airport, is located uh, kind of north of the center of, of, of Dubai on, on the way towards Sharjah, which is which is uh, still farther north of Dubai. Abu Dhabi, uh, the, the emirate, the city, um, is located, oh, an hour and a half, two hours uh, south of Dubai down the road. Um, and, and, and its airport is, is, is located nearby. Just to the uh, just to the east of the center uh, of, of the city. Well, the new airport in Dubai is located on the other side of Dubai, south of Dubai, a good way down the road toward Abu Dhabi. Uh, you know, still closer to Dubai than to Abu Dhabi, um, but uh, um, but you know, within within much more reasonable driving range of Abu Dhabi, and so you know, it's it's an interesting question that if things were to get really bad, you know, and, and, uh, um, you know, if the powers that be were to decide that, look, Abu Dhabi just doesn't need its own airline for, for the population size that it has, you know, the, the, 
just just looking at things commercially, the merger could make sense. A merger, you know, could make sense, and uh, you know, and perhaps Abu Dhabi's airport would would remain as as uh, as as an outstation. Yeah, you know, with flights to just you know two other hubs, basically, you know, Qatar Airways flight over from Doha and that sort of thing, you know, and, and and you know, just whatever local demand there was would would uh, would be served. Anyway, though, so so just sort of playing the you know fantasy sports part of it uh, does it make some sense yeah you know it it, it it seems to um it you know obviously there are a lot of people in the world who have long thought that abu dhabi uh, doesn't you know there's in terms of local demand um and just even sort of global demand for connections and everything that it, it doesn't justify an airline there you know it it, it 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 it's interesting um do i think it's likely to happen i mean again it, it just would would depend on um things getting so bad or 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 um rulers there just being you know, so tired with um, sort of absorbing the the ongoing losses that Etty had, which which is almost certainly what the, what they're experiencing and have been experiencing for a long time. You know, notwithstanding, uh, you know, th- some of their claims to the contrary. Obviously, it would be helpful for Emirates. It would be helpful for everybody you know, to have you know, sort of one less independent airline competing um, for for that traffic. Um, so. You know, we'll see. I, I certainly don't predict it's going to happen. Um, you know, j- just just because of of, of, of the politics. Um, but uh, you know, if you could set that aside, then you'd have to say that that's not a crazy thought. Let's talk a minute about aircraft. Generally, wide body demand has been a little weak, whereas narrow body demand has held up. But a little more specifically, demand for larger narrow bodies is what has held up. There haven't been a lot of orders for Boeing and Airbus's smaller narrow bodies, the 737 MAX 7s and the A319 NEOs. What does the trend in upgaging mean for these aircraft? Well, it's it's not good for them. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, to paint the picture, we're talking uh, for all the thousands of... of uh, you know, Neos and Maxes that have been ordered. Uh, I mean, Neos, what, what's it? I don't know, five thousand or something. You know, Maxes, uh, a few thousand as well. You know, we're talking each of those models. The Max Seven and the A319 Neo has fifty-five units on order. Tells you all you need to know about how excited airlines are about those uh, the, those those aircraft. Now, now there's some key customers among those. Uh, you know, who've ordered those units, which which is you know what what made it tricky and why you know Boeing for one has has very much reaffirmed its commitment to the uh, Max 7 um if if Airbus perhaps not as much so for the 319 Neo but um you know it's 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 Southwest and WestJet that have ordered the Max 7 it's uh Frontier and Avianca that have ordered the uh, 319 Neo um but anyway yeah no it, it's uh, you could see airlines um uh, just just uh, uh aren't too interested in those aircraft and I think it's exactly what you said uh, the trend toward uh, toward upgaging. Um, now, you know, if if fuel prices were to stay low for the long term, uh, then it, it it tips the sc- scales a little bit uh, toward smaller aircraft not being such a bad thing. Uh, smaller aircraft within a family, because um, uh, you know that that's where you really take the penalty with the smaller aircraft is on your your unit costs as they relate to fuel. And so, if you, so you know, if you yeah, you know, there are markets where just in terms of demand and in terms of you know, keeping your unit revenues up, uh, the smaller plane might be the right airplane. But your airlines have generally in recent years said, yeah, okay, that's fine, but give us the bigger airplane. If we want to reduce capacity, we'll just fly with fewer frequencies. Um, we'll do it that way. You know, I, I guess if at some point airlines, uh, uh, you know, t- t- feel comfortable thinking that fuel is just going to stay cheap for a really long time, then maybe 
we'll uh, see some kind of res- resurgence in, in demand for these aircraft. Also, just once they're in revenue service, you know, if the economics just aren't as bad as airlines think, I mean, that's part of it. You know, just, just, just uh, you know, right now it's all theoretical. Um, and, and the Max 7, I should say, you know, Boeing did re- redesign it a bit. Um, it's it's uh, you know, to be more appealing than it originally was. Um, but these are very clearly not going to be anchors of, of, of those programs, which is, which is uh, 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 a big story when you think about, uh, you know, there are a lot of A319s, current generation A319s flying around in the world. There are a lot of 737-700s flying around in the world. I mean, heck, there are even 737-600s and A318s, which you know, Boeing and Airbus very clearly never even considered um, re-engineing. But uh, it, yeah, it, it, it speaks to how the world has changed since uh, that last generation of aircraft were, were first being marketed. Moving from aircraft to airports, in the March 13th issue of Airline Weekly, we had a chart of the 25 biggest airports in the world. They were ranked by seat capacity in the second quarter. Atlanta is number one, followed by Beijing, Dubai, Tokyo, Haneda, London, Heathrow, the usual suspects. But then we take that 25 and rank it by year-over-year growth. Number one was Kuala Lumpur, followed by Delhi, Denver, and Guangzhou. Nothing too surprising, But one that was in the top half of the growth was Amsterdam, number six on the list with 7% growth. What's happening there, and is that a surprise? Well, yeah, it, you know, it, it is an airport where where you're able to grow, uh, you know, more so than, uh, let's say, you know, Heathrow, for example, uh, you, you know, where we're. we're the only way to grow is by upgaging you know, by putting a larger aircraft in, uh, because it's just completely you know at, at its at its capacity. So um, that's not the case in Amsterdam. Um, uh, you know, Amsterdam is a uh, uh, you know has plenty of runways and all that. You know, just 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 um, you know a, a decent place to operate. And look, uh, um, you know, more of that growth than than any other is driven by KLM. Air France KLM is a company. Uh, it has has allocated more growth to KLM than it has to Air France uh, because KLM is, is uh, because, well, because that's just where it can make more money, um, you know, because of labor costs and so forth. Uh, they've sort of they're kind of, and all the European airline groups have been doing this. They kind of let the various carriers compete for the growth. And, uh, you know, KLM has, has, has been winning the growth because of, of uh, its more competitive labor co- uh, costs. So, um, so, you know, just when you kind of look at what's driving the growth, it's, it's uh, you know, more than any other airline, KLM, uh, whose growth there is up 6%, but, you know, it's just many more seats that we're talking about. Um, um, Transavia also part of the same airline group. EasyJet has grown uh, substantially there, uh, and, and moving the needle with its growth. Alitalia, by the way, uh, very high year-over-year growth, and I suspect that that is related to the fact that its uh, joint venture with Air France KLM has, uh, it, it, I should say, its short-haul joint venture with them uh, it, it has 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 come to an end, and and so probably, and I'm just speculating here, but you know, in the past, they would have planned the capacity jointly, or Alitalia couldn't have just gone and added a whole bunch of seats, uh, you know, without. Uh, its partner agreeing to that, but um, you know now that's uh, no longer the case, and that that may be why they've allocated so much more growth there. And then you have you know, LCC Wow Air from Iceland is another one, uh, more than double now uh, the size that it was a year ago at Amsterdam, albeit off a, a small base. And one more that interests me was Seoul Incheon, number five on the list with eight percent growth. Yeah, and that's driven by uh, Korean and Asiana, uh, which are both uh, growing at a, at a 
that are at a decent clip. Um, not not a not on a huge percentage base growth uh, for you know for them, but uh, but you know just, just they're just far larger there to uh, to begin with. Um, and then you have uh, LCCs, um, Jeju Air, uh, an independent LCC, uh, on a percentage basis growing very rapidly. Not adding as many total seats as, as either of those mainline ones, but very rapidly. Jin Air, uh, part of the Korean Air family, uh, the low cost unit there, also uh, growing very rapidly on a uh, on a percentage basis there. Okay, we've talked about airlines, airports, oil prices, and aircraft. What's left to talk about? Oh, I know. Let's talk about the weather. The state of New York is getting pummeled by snow right now. I can attest to this because I was just shoveling my driveway. And Seth, you can attest because you've been all over the news talking about the impact on the airlines. As we record this, cancellations are nearing the five-digit mark. How much bottom line impact are we talking about here? Yeah, well, you know, we'll get the answer to that at some point. But I, you know, I think it's going to be something for the U.S. industry. So, you know, two hundred, three hundred million dollars, something like that would be would be my guess. Just kind of when you, when you look at past ones and and just you know it, how much impact there was here. That's a lot of money. I mean, it's 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 a it's it's you know it's it's a material impact, but not. Uh, uh, certainly not a catastrophic impact for an industry that'll do, you know, thirty-five billion dollars in revenue or something like that this quarter. Um, and and don't forget, Jason. I mean, you know, there's most winters you have a snowstorm. Uh, you know, last winter was real mild. This one had been mild. So you know, it, it just kind of makes this winter look more like uh, other typical winters. Um, so it, it, you know, it's not that that's uh, all incremental to what you would ever expect during the winter. Um, but uh, but sure, you know, relative to had this not happen and had they managed to skate through with just this incredibly, uh, you know, mild winter, uh, yeah, it's something something like that. More impact on a percentage basis for an airline, let's say like JetBlue with with a disproportionate exposure to the Northeast. Less impact for Alaska or for Southwest. You know, an airline like United, a fair amount of exposure because of its hubs in uh, O'Hare and Newark. But uh, you know, overall, uh, they're 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 to be fine, uh, even though they very clearly wish this wouldn't have happened. Tell us a bit about how airlines have evolved in how they respond to these storms. Yeah, it's it's rather different uh, from from uh, in, a, in a lot of ways from how it used to be. You know, in the old days, and I'm talking oh, before 2010. Uh, before the tarmac delay rule, um, airlines more or less just kind of tried to fly as long as it was safe to fly. Um, and then at some point, the storm hit and, uh, you know, everything was just kind of stuck wherever it was. Um, you know, you, you kind of have planes and people scattered everywhere. And you would get those uh, those rare but awful incidents of, you know, the plane load of people stuck for, you know, hours without food and water and functioning toilets and all that away from a gate. Um, and so and that's where the tarmac delay started, um, uh, came from. The government said, okay, no more of that, or you will face very substantial fines. And I mean, I'm talking, it can be millions of dollars for, for just one lo- uh, plane load of passengers uh, stuck in an awful situation. So um, airlines uh, prodded by that sort of started changing a little bit of how they do things. Um, they proactively cancel more flights uh, than they used to. And so it does a few things. Um, you know, first of all, it, it, uh, it can inconvenience more total people uh, than, than in the past. Because sometimes, I mean, look, even this storm, you know, it ended up being that, you know, the airports weren't as badly impacted as, as, uh, you know, people maybe thought because more of the impact was, was west of the major cities along the East coast. And there've been other times when, when there was, you know, a lot of snow forecast and just 
you know, almost nothing happened. Um, and in those cases, you know, well, now you've canceled thousands of flights that maybe in retrospect, you didn't have to cancel and that maybe you wouldn't have canceled um, a, a decade ago. Uh, but on the other hand, all of those inconvenienced people generally are notified farther in advance of their flights. So they're inconvenienced, but they're inconvenienced, you know, in front of a fireplace at, at home or at their, uh, you know, they, or at their relatives' homes if, if they're uh, away from over at a hotel or something rather than, you know, sleeping on the floor of an airport more often than not. Um, and, and also what you do is you, uh, you know, you you leave things positioned to restart the operation more smoothly afterwards. You can have this, you know, really messy Tuesday. Um, but then, you know, Wednesday can be just not that bad because you kind of left everything positioned, all the planes and employees where they need to be to restart. Uh, and maybe by, you know, by Thursday, you're just dealing with something that's just not all that bad at all. Airlines also pay attention to sort of trying to isolate the impact, you know, to have it that, yeah, you know, nothing you can do about that flight from New York to Atlanta, uh, because, you know, because nothing's operating in New York. Um, but the flight from Atlanta to Los Angeles, you know, hey, let's let's make sure that plane, um, you know, wasn't coming in if possible um, from New York. They do a better job of that uh than they used to so um so you know there, there are there are you know situations where it can be worse than it used to be but overall uh, even though airlines fought very vigorously against that tarmac delay rule um because you know they just felt like hey they they you know they know what their passengers want and they don't didn't want the government telling them how to uh how to how to manage these situations uh you know in the end not not such a not such a bad thing one more question on this this storm came with both good and bad timing didn't it it did. So uh, so in terms of the season, um, you know, late winter storms are worse than, you know, a storm in, you know, kind of between mid-January and late February um, because demand is higher uh, later in the winter. Um, so that means a few things. That means, you know, first of all, there's just more revenue at stake when it's later. Um, it also means that, you know, if flights are emptier, you just have more uh, more empty seats on other flights to reaccommodate the people who are inconvenienced. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so, so not as much revenue ends up being uh, displaced. If anything, uh, I mean, and this was even more true back when fuel was expensive, but, um, but if anything, you know, in a low demand period, um, if you fly a lot less, you're actually saving some of your variable costs because you're not burning as much fuel and all that. Um, and if you can consolidate most of the revenue onto just fewer flights, it could just be not all that bad of a thing at all. That's not as true once you get into March and you have the spring break traffic. On the other hand, this was a mostly Tuesday, Wednesday event. I mean, Monday was messy in Chicago. Uh, then Tuesday, Wednesday uh, in in the Northeast. Um, well, those are your low demand days of the week. Uh, so you don't like it being in March rather than kind of in late January, early February. Um, but you, you like it better being Tuesday, Wednesday rather than Friday, Sunday. You also like it better when it's a year when Easter and Passover uh, are in April as they are this year. Because, uh, I mean, another year they could be falling right now and this could be a, a, a much bigger financial issue. So add it all up. Um, probably more good luck than bad luck uh, in, in terms of the timing, notwithstanding uh, the, the fact that, that uh, just seasonally speaking, a little bit more of a high demand period than had this been a month ago. And we'll wrap with that. Our 68th podcast is in the books. Seth, I know you've got to run to some broadcast somewhere, I'm sure, but I'll look after your hot toddy for you. It will not go to waste. For Seth Kaplan, I'm Jason Cottrell. It's the Airline Weekly Lounge. This podcast has been sponsored by the Global Connected Aircraft Summit. Visit GCASummit.com. Hey, when did they start naming these winter storms? I don't know. It's silly. This one's called Stella. Stella! Stella!